Yo, what's up, guys? It's Danny. On today's episode of the podcast, we will be having my coworker, Philip Weber, on the show. Philip is currently working in the tech field and has had an interesting journey along the way. He's drawn a lot of wisdom from the challenges he's faced and believes that personal growth is the center of a good life. He's had a changing career path and taps into his creative side, both in and outside of the office. So, Philip, how are you doing today? It's great to have you on the show. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thank Thanks. you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. It's uh, it's always fun to talk about creative endeavors. Yeah, absolutely. So something you've mentioned to me in the past is that you've graduated from college with a math degree, but now you're working in the tech field. How did this come about? Oh, yeah. So um, let's see. So I graduated from college in 2009, which was a bad time for the job market because the housing bubble had just burst and we were all floundering through that. I think what that was in 2008. So it was like a year in and things hadn't turned around much. Uh, So uh, mainly I moved from Let's see. So I went to college in North Carolina, got my math degree at a super hippie college and hadn't really decided what I definitely wanted to do at that point. Uh, So then spending the summer at home, looking at bad job prospects, one of my friends invited me up north to live in New Jersey, right across the border from Pennsylvania in Phillipsburg, uh, across from Easton. And, uh, while I was there, one of their friends owned a web development company that was like a family run thing, like four employees. And uh, while I was working as a lifeguard, because I've been doing that through college and for like eight years, I was a lifeguard uh, to like pay the bills. I switched over to working at this family owned tech company for about half a year. And that's how I got my foot in the door. The next job I got was through my girlfriend's college mailing list. One of the opportunities stood out to her and she pointed out to me and it was two week. It was a two week contract to do QA testing. And it basically said no experience necessary and paid 20 bucks an hour. And I went and the company kept me on for a year on contract instead of two weeks. And then they hired me and I worked for them for another four years before I started moving around. So, yeah, so that's, that was like, it was a bunch of happenstance, I suppose. It was kind of like follow, follow the opportunities and uh, they popped up and I just found that I really liked quality assurance work, like testing software. I think partly because it reminded me of working out math problems. Like I got a math degree because I respect math a lot. And I thought if you don't know exactly what you're going to do, a degree that is universally respectable, like mathematics would open a lot of doors. And so I kind of stacked the deck in my favor without knowing exactly where I was going, which is kind of a key, a key approach in how I, how I work through things. Yeah, that's very interesting. I definitely get what you're saying as far as 
math goes because as a computer science student, I have to study a lot of math and I feel that the problem solving approach that you take to the two is very similar, would you say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, math is a logical language, just like programming. And I think it shows in the ways you can assess a mathematical problem translate really easily to the ways you can assess a programming issue. Yeah, for sure. Now, what would you say were your biggest challenges coming into the field with no experience? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, let's see. Um, one is you don't have an idea initially of what the the obvious pitfalls are. And I, that's true in any learning experience, right? When you start working on some skill or endeavor. And I do think everything, everything boils down to being a skill. Uh, usually a couple different skills that you'll, all, you'll have to practice independently. But the pitfalls at first are like, everyone learns the big pitfalls early on in practicing a skill. So when you come to a skill fresh, you don't know what the big pitfalls are the way the people who've only been doing it for even a short time will. And so I had no clue about how business in tech worked. And I didn't have any idea about, oh, the acronyms. The acronyms were probably the easiest to pick out. It's like, what is an SDLC? Like, what does that even mean? And people already have kind of deep knowledge of the terminology in their field. And it can be really tough to make up that ground without having, it, having the experiences they do. I, I suppose it probably, uh, yeah. Another big thing is the, what's it called? The, is it the expert paradox, I think is what it's called, where when you're good at something, you don't remember what it's like to be bad at something. And it means that all the people around you who've been practicing coding for 20 years can't even understand what it's like from your perspective to not have half of that experience at least. And so it can be very difficult to communicate with people. I think that's, communication is pretty much always the biggest problem, but there's also an amount of, you have to experience so much to be able to understand what people are saying sometimes that you're just left behind. So I think that was, that was the biggest challenge was a lack of experience, which wouldn't really surprise anyone. Uh, and a, a difficult time communicating with people who are deeply embedded in the technology already. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Like personally, after studying this stuff for years, I can't even imagine just like jumping into it without having at least some knowledge of it. That seems very difficult, very impressive that you pulled that off. The, uh, the family business did a great job of breaking me in. It was a really comfortable place. Everyone respected me for things I could already do, which I was probably the, 
the key to maintaining like self-esteem while you go through the like changes it takes to be good at something totally new. Um, and they let me like, I think I spent half the time I worked at that company taking care of their kids, like entertaining them so that they could get work done because it was like in their basement, which was of a big house, but still like their five-year-old daughter would come down and I'd be like on uh, child distraction duty. And the <laughs> I also loaded their like wood stove and chopped wood. So, you know, I was only doing like half tech work. Now I did spend like 13 hours a day at their place for like six months straight. Uh, but yeah, so they really just like let me learn at a pace without putting me down for not being good at it. And they broke me into like, I didn't know what like, I didn't know how servers worked. Here I am working for a web development company. I like didn't understand how the internet worked, like IP addresses, like everything was like completely out of my league. But uh, they pretty much just let me ask questions, let me hack away at stuff. And yeah, that's where I like got my chops, I suppose. What would you say like the resources you used were, were they kind of showing you the ropes or were you using online tutorials and YouTube and stuff like that along the way too. Yeah. Let's see. At that point, I wasn't even a great Googler uh, of issues, which was something that you have, like in tech, I think you have to learn like uh, OpenStack. Is that, no, it's not OpenStack. What is uh Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow. Yeah. <laughs> you see, I've been working at Nuix too long. Um, <laughs> Stack Overflow is like, critical right it's just such a great resource and so so useful to have but when i started at this web development company i application x is what it's called um i was learning mainly from the uh the the ide itself like it's little like uh tooltips were basically my primary source of information about how to code uh, like websites in HTML. And uh, the rest was talking to my coworkers because uh, one of my coworkers was just a fantastic like 25 year plus vet and she could just code like crazy. And uh, her development skills were insane. And I'd be like, what about this? And she'd be like, oh yeah, I can tell you about that. And give you like, such a succinct description of how things worked that didn't even use technical language except where necessary. And I think I model my own technical conversation after that, like the minimum amount of jargon or even totally non-tech metaphors to try and understand how things work. Cause I think, I don't know, when I found myself in QA, I, it became obvious that the job was to communicate how things worked between people. Otherwise it'll be difficult to make sure that they do work. And that's where I really just kind of fell in love with the work. Let's see. Yeah. So mostly I was learning from the IDE and from other people. Wow. That's very interesting. Like, as you say, communication is important. And if you can learn a lot, if you can learn so much just simply through communicating, that's really, that's really a great position to be in. 
Yeah, I read recently that uh, basically humans learn much more effectively via social interactions than they do from anything else. Like something about, I think, my interpretation was something about the social context of learning is really beneficial. Maybe it's that socialness brings a lot of context that lets you fix information in your mind. Um, but you know, like, you know how it's easy to pick out like the one frowny face and a hundred smiley faces because, mm -hmm. right? Because you're tuned to that negative social impact. Uh, I think the human brain is designed to, to interpret and socialize and collaborate. And so um, I wasn't totally surprised, but the, uh, the study to back it up was kind of interesting. That was one of the, let's see, the most recent book I read for my own creative works was called Becoming Brilliant. And it's about the 21st century skills we should be teaching our kids. And it was talking about that, how everyone learns better socially than they do individually. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like, I feel like part of it is just the fact that you're talking to another person about something and it's a lot more, you know, you can remember it a lot better than say reading a book, like just through talking it out. Yeah. I think whenever you're interacting with another person, you've got more at stake and that alone is going to fix things. But also like when you collaboratively think through an idea I think it really helps nail things down. Yeah, for sure. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you is, there's a lot of people out there in life that are kind of, you know, lost. Like maybe some of them are convinced that what they're doing in college is what they're going to have to do for the rest of their lives. And, you know, at some point they might realize that, oh, they don't like it as much as they thought they did. What would your advice be to those people out there that are really not sure where they're going? Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel it. I feel it. I first, I'll, I'll first, I'll put my chops on the line for answering the question. Um, when I got to college, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, my first year, I didn't take any math classes or my first semester. And when I was picking my classes for the next semester, and I didn't need any. I think I like, I, I brought credits up to calculus one. So my next class would be calculus two. And I realized I didn't have to take calculus two like ever to get most of the degrees that I could. And I found out I missed math. And I was like, I can't believe I just want to take a math class just because. And I'm like, well, that's, I'm going to have to go with a math major if I do that, because otherwise it's like pre-med or straight math is the only reason I would take calculus too. We didn't even have a computer science major. There was a, a CS minor at my college. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll go with math. And it was like three years into my degree when I finally realized what I wanted to do. And that was to design games, right? I mean, <laughs> pretty common desire among people, but I thought, ah, oh, that is what I actually 
really think I can contribute to the world. And I think the two, the two key points that got me there that let me say, yes, I want to do this is that my dad had always told me, figure out what you want to do and find someone to pay you to do it. <laughs> so he at least put the question of what I wanted to do in my mind early. That was, you know, I must, he said that my whole life. I must have been hearing that when I was like seven or something. Uh, my parents were potters. So like self-employed ceramicists and very poor. Uh, and I grew up in rural Georgia, but we had a good life and it wasn't like scraping by. But I saw them pursue the life they wanted and I was impressed. So I knew it was possible and it had been suggested to me that I should figure it out. So then I'm like, what, 23 in college or something. And I figure out that like, man, I just, I want to build games for people. And that's when I decided that even if it wouldn't be my primary career. I would design games on the side, like that the important thing was to do it. And my first couple of years, I dreamed of doing a video game, but the amount of work and training and technical expertise that goes into that is insane, insane. Um, a matter of fact, some of my past co-ops from uh, your college have like told me exactly how crazy it is um, to get that degree. And I thought, I guess I'll never be able to do it. And then this is the most important thing. I think if you're lost, then the number one skill you have to have is the ability to change your mind. Because if you are lost and you can't change your mind, you stay lost. And so I decided, well, on the side, I will, I'll design board games. And then I was like, I'll design D&D classes. You know, I just kept knocking down my target until I could actually achieve it on my own. And what I ended up with at first was I designed like, uh, I forget what they're called, the like prestige classes for Dungeons and Dragons. And I designed like, classes for world of darkness like these role-playing games and eventually i made let's see so a couple of years down the road i started modding uh xcom 2013 the the firaxis like kind of modern re-release -re of xcom and uh that was probably the first creative project i ever managed to finish and produce publicly so, the, and that probably, let's see, that was five, about five years ago. I forget, three to five years ago, I think is when I finally wrapped that up. So then, yeah, so, so to repeat, I think it's, the key is to be able to adjust what your goal is. Once you, once you figure out what you actually enjoy doing the key is to like reconfigure your perspective until you can find a way to start doing it 
and then just follow that path while you do whatever else you need to do to stay afloat. Yeah, I feel that point so hard. For me, one of my fascinations is just human beings and you know the different personalities they have. And for a while, I was kind of doing photography for a bit, but I figured out that that wasn't really satisfying to me enough. Like there wasn't enough interaction with people within that. And so that's kind of how I started to come to the podcast. Like I feel like people's voices need to be heard a little bit more than what I was doing in the past. So. Oh yeah. I, I think the next wave of creative endeavors is, I think it should and probably will focus on human to human interaction. I think Right now we're experiencing the like pitfalls of highly individualistic digital experiences and like kind of gathering the skills we need to create a more collaborative uh, digital world for humans to live and interact with. Something that's actually like shaped for humans, you know, something ergonomic as opposed to something that was just built as easily and cheaply as possible. Yeah, for sure. Like, I feel like you're seeing a lot more collaboration on social media platforms coming around today as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I think, I think people are correctly identifying what humans are good at, which is working together. And we're trying to figure out how to amplify that online. And like the sheer like possibility at first was enough to like confound everyone. You know, you just do what you can at first. Like, I think humans are just, we were bad at the internet. We've had it around for, I don't know what, like, 25 or 30 years that you could actually interact with it if you weren't just in DARPA or something. And it comes with like, it's just a whole new environment. And so there's a whole new set of skills that you have to figure out how to deal with it. And so like, I don't know, programming, typing, uh, how to communicate properly via text. Like, I don't know how many miscommunications I've seen between people because they were reading something instead of hearing it. And like the loss of information you have from not seeing body language or hearing tone over the internet is just like, these are all huge hurdles that no one thought about at first because the detriments weren't apparent. And now we've got like people spending so much time playing phone games. And I, you know, I'm addicted to Marvel Puzzle Quest, shout out, but like, <laughs> it's not really a good game. And like controlling those those pitfalls in your life in a digital information like downpour is is crazy it's it's very difficult because no one told us how to deal with it in advance we're all just like stumbling into it and people are like i wonder if it's a problem that everyone's staring at their phone instead of talking and you're like yeah i we may have to address that we might need whole skill sets that go along with that Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the biggest things I've been thinking about recently is 
you know, how can I turn my phone into something that just completely adds to my life? Like something that I'm using strictly for communication and like being productive and without falling into the many distractions that come with using a phone, you know, because it can be a great resource. Like there's so many things you can do with the devices we have today, but there's also tons of ways that you can use it in unproductive ways as well. Oh yeah. I mean, the, our phone, our, your phone is like, it's like a magic wand. Like it can do almost anything if you know how and have like, you don't really need a ton of resources to get the basic utility of in almost any field out of your phone. Like it's not super expensive, but like what to do is tough. And I think that's, that's what we're working towards in the future. And I think we're going to, we're going to need a lot of people who are competent at assessing circumstances, accessing information and then following through uh, but you don't necessarily need to memorize tons of stuff anymore because you can go out and pick it up like super quickly. Like YouTube is like a skills repository. If you ever need to know how to do something, you can like find a video of someone doing it, almost the exact thing that you're doing and or that you intend to do and just study it. And so it's not like we need to take in tons of content in advance we need to have agile and kind of powerful processing skills. I think that's what's key. And that's what lets you use a tool like the internet effectively without blowing your mind. Yeah, for sure. There's so much stimulation that comes from the internet. There's so much information that's out there and you just have to be efficient at picking and choosing when and how you want to take in that information. Yeah. It's like, if I, I think of the amount of content information or just otherwise out there is like an ocean. I really like the term data lake that I picked up at Newix, like to refer to like a business's like ocean of stored data that is kind of difficult to penetrate with questions. Um, one of the things I've learned at Nuix is that just because you have data doesn't mean you understand what it means or it, it's easy to obscure meaning in a pile of data, you know, like you can look at a collection of names and learn nothing, but you can also look at a collection of names and see that the, all the last names are the same and go, this must be a family, you know, like knowing how to see meaningful and relevant connections between data is what our company does. And the idea that like you could have a lake of data that you didn't understand or like you, that there was hidden meaning in it that you couldn't access without the right questions or the right queries, you know? I thought that that was like incredibly interesting to me and it changed how I thought about the internet because now I think of the internet as like the ocean and the way you navigate it, it's, it, so when I'm looking for a way to understand something, I reach for a metaphor, no matter how clunky I think it's how the human brain 
works um, or it's, it's highly digestible. I think metaphors are easy for the brain to intake and there's a lot of value in not in, in, in ease like transaction. I think the way I think of ease is reduced transaction costs and transaction costs kind of rule the world. Um, whatever is difficult to do either doesn't get done or requires a lot of effort and whatever is easy can be repeated often. And if it has value and is easy, then you found yourself like wealthy in whatever it is that you were doing. Uh, so metaphors are, since they're easy for our brain to understand because they're effectively some kind of narrative. And I think the mind is a narrative machine. Uh, reaching for a metaphor first is like just finding something digestible about the situation and going, what can I do here? And thinking of myself as a ship on an ocean of data helped me figure out what tools I would need. I was like, I'll have to do whatever a ship does if I can navigate this. And so like, what do you do if you were in the middle of the ocean and captain of like a cruise liner or something and you knew you had things to do, but like, what are your first priorities? And I think it's, you need to pick a place to go. And then a lot follows from there and you need to steadily progress towards it, even if you can't see it on the horizon yet. And I think the navigation and the propulsion, the momentum are kind of like the two things I got out of that metaphor. And those are what I've taken to use when I like go through the internet or like when I try and pursue my goals. So I like first to figure out what I like the best about anything. I'll be like, oh, I love how, how badass characters in anime can be sometimes. You're like, wow, I never imagined something so cool or like that character, like most of this anime sucks, but this one character is just so like, how, those moves are so sick or like this just, it gets me hyped. Like, huh, what about that? And the other thing, the propulsion part of it is one of the more difficult experiences of like pursuing, I think, is changing yourself to be the, the person that can do what you want to do. That was what really was very hard, I found at first, is like you say, I want to do this. And you're like, yes. And then you start. And then you're like, fuck, this is difficult. I'm not the kind of person who can do this. And the trick is to go, but I could be. And to spend the time to make yourself the kind of person who can do what you want to do. And that might take studying or it might take years of practice. But like the first thing you have to build the engine to take you in the direction you want to go. And sometimes you already have part of an engine and sometimes you don't have anything. And being willing to change is the true cost, I think, of pursuing your goals. And that's why I say changing your mind is most important. I kind of wandered off there. Was that, your, did you ask that question or did I just kind of go? <laughs> um, well, like it kind of fit in, I guess, kind of like 
all across the same metaphor, how you have to do things with purpose, like whether you're using the internet yeah, or like you're just trying to go for your goals. Like everything has to kind of be done with purpose and you have to know what you want in your head or else things can get really cluttered. Yeah. I, I would say if you, if you know what you're going to do, it's easier to ignore things that won't help. And uh, if you find it hard to summon up the willpower or like the sustained interest to move forward, then you have to find what, what will actually work for who you are. And then you have to find the places where you can make yourself a little better at doing that too. So like, um, you know, like I give myself permission to play a shit ton of puzzle quest every day. I mean, it's just like, that's fine. I'm cool with that. It's good for me. Um, but I also found I had to turn. So I spent a lot of time gaming, right. Um, out of college while working, I would come home, play the PlayStation. I probably played, I don't know. It could easily do 18 to 20 hours a week of video game playing. And I thought this is, I'm going to have to make this productive. So that's why I started producing YouTube content, not for anyone specifically. I thought, ah, oh, maybe my friends will, like, I thought maybe like three people would come in and watch me and I knew all of their names already. And I just wanted to get more out of my gaming. And so I said, all right, well, you have to YouTube some amount of the time you spend playing games now just to learn YouTube. And then people started like watching and I got some interactions and I don't know, my channel got up to like 400 people or something, you know, like nothing crazy, but there was a community there and people actually talked to me and they liked some stuff about how I did my content. And I, it was very interesting and it was very encouraging. And uh, you just like, I just tried to make, I tried to squeeze more utility out of what I already like to do. And I think if you can just go like, I'm doing too much of this. If you can try and turn something that you feel like you're not getting enough value out of, for me, that was my video gaming. Like I enjoyed it, but I knew that if I spent this much time in my life playing video games and not doing anything else with that time, I was in trouble. So then I was like, why don't I just stack two things together? I'll, I will play video games and learn to YouTube. <laughs> and then when one little change, like what emerged from that was, I don't know, like I probably spent seven years YouTubing and started another channel that got up to like 900 viewers. And I don't know, I produced hundreds of hours of, of like YouTube let's plays and stuff. And uh, it was really enjoyable. And I hadn't planned on anything except not <laughs> doing so little with the time I spent gaming, I was like, this isn't enough. So I don't know, always look for ways to add value. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, and some of the, some of the time I feel like some things can even be like, not even that much more effort than you would have normally put in to what you're trying to add value to. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can be really simple. Like if, for example, if you're going to be in the office with your coworkers, then it's not 
that much more effort to socialize with them. But the amount you can gain from being sociable with your office coworkers is insane because when like the the studies on like water cooler conversations and how important and effective they are for like uh, a business's productivity in general is crazy like the the just chatting about stuff like cross-pollination of information can I'm sure and I'm sure has saved like millions of dollars over the course of like the last I don't know I would say probably it might even just be like a year like hearing that someone was going to make a horrible mistake and going whoa that's a horrible mistake I know because I have specialized knowledge that you wouldn't have access to because I'm an engineer and I know you can't mix that kind of like input with what our system does. Like those kind of things can like save your butt. But also like feeling good. Like there's so much that comes from like the small act of going, I'm going to be a social component of my workplace as well as just my workplace. Like it's that alone is huge. And I think it's kind of always the case that if you can just find a way to squeeze a little more out of what you're already going to do, it'll make your life that much better. And if you get good at it, like over the years, it really piles up. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like us having the luxury of working at Newix, which is an open office, definitely helps with the social component. I felt it was a much more difficult to socialize last year when I worked at a place that had cubicles. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And Newix has a good component of like a bunch of good people, uh, social component. When I came after I got there, it's hard to tell when you're interviewing exactly where the whole, you know, office stands, but there were so many people that were easy to work with that it made it very easy to socialize. And some places it's a lot harder, right? And for some people, it's a bad fit. Maybe you, maybe someone that you're forced to interact with. Um, so it can be a lot, lot harder in different circumstances, but the potential gains are so big that it might still be worth it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it, it is easy where we work now. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot of fun. Now, something I want to go back to is talking kind of about the mental clutter and how you handle that. Now, something that you've mentioned to me before is that you like to take Sundays as your day away from technology. What is the purpose behind these days? Like, how do you, what do you do with these days and what benefits do they give you? Sure. Yeah. So every Sunday that I can, which is 90% of Sundays, and I'll often do a makeup day if I miss one. I hang out with my buddy, Christina, who's also a Southerner. And um, the primary goal, like, I'll take her out to brunch because she's a scientist and scientists don't get paid enough. And I'm a tech worker and tech workers get paid plenty. And uh, we chill, we go back to her place. So I'm away from all of my usual stuff. And I'll often bring 
all of the physical components of whatever projects I'm working on. So like I've been working on uh, a collaborative storytelling game that is like not electronic. And so I've got a bunch of cards and I've got like mats and like, you know, I've got a bunch of art and like creative work that I use to like help experiment with. And so primarily what we'll do is we'll hang out. She'll let me jabber about whatever creative project I'm on because I switch regularly between two or three projects on a like, usually like a bi-monthly basis, like every other month. I'll like switch to a new project unless I'm close to some critical point I feel. And we just take care of each other. And the like, like, so we were both raised down South. She grew up in Kentucky and I grew up in Georgia. And the like hospitality down South is legendary if overblown, you know, it's definitely part of like the culture. And we just spend the time like gossiping, relaxing, working, talking out whatever problems we have. She gardens. I help sometimes. I help like I drive her around and we pick up whatever she needs at Home Depot. We go to brunch. It's great. The purpose of that is one to just sustain your existence. You have to take time to enjoy what you do have. And I think that's a skill. Um, I think it's, I think almost everything has three different skills. One, the doing of the thing. One, the receiving of the thing being done. So like you can be good at throwing a baseball, but it doesn't make you good at catching a baseball. But the third skill is experiencing baseball being played like the experience like you need to kind of revel in whatever it is you do and you can be better or worse at that and I think what we do is we take the time to enjoy the lives we built on Sunday and that's I mean you know I probably stole it from organized religion (laughs) down south I mean that is kind of what they do on Sunday but it's just like a day to say well whatever is going on right now what's good and to just enjoy that and to share it with someone and I think sharing with someone is a huge thing like if you've ever heard uh, pain shared is pain divided and joy shared is joy multiplied I think that is I think that's very true. So it's really just a a way to say whatever, like if all my other days are for doing, if I spend six days doing stuff, I want at least one day just enjoying what I've done because like gratitude and appreciation are what keep you in a positive mindset. It's like, it's kind of where your happiness comes from, I would say, or at least it's, the key component you have control over is appreciation and gratitude. So it's mostly about appreciation and about relaxing and refocusing. Like we talk about what we're, what our plans, our endeavors are. And so it gives you some time where you're not actually doing something to go, what should I be doing? 
Because if you just keep doing stuff, you'll wind up doing things that you don't need to do. So that's, that's the general soup of stuff that we get into. Uh, but one of the most important things is not setting any strict boundaries on it. Uh, having leeway to just do whatever it is you need to do. And it turns out that almost nothing I need to do, at least for one day a week, is online. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's good. It's very good. Yeah, I think that's a great strategy. I feel a lot of us in our busy lives today need just moments where you can just relax and be in the moment. Yeah, definitely. I like humans. I say I always like to think of like I like to think of humans as creatures. You know, like what as the the human animal, right? Like I know our minds are incredibly powerful and flexible, and we can live in whole worlds created only by the human mind. But you have to know that you're a mind living inside a body and that that body is an animal. And it, what did the human animal do before now? Like, what did it evolve to do? And we do so much more than our ancestors did. Like, it's not all important. It's not all relevant to like survival, but they didn't have nearly so much to do. They were bored so much more often than we were bored. And they had access to so much less everything than we have access to, including bad things. Like we have access to so many more horrible things happening over the world that we would never have known about. Um, and that like, you have to take care of the animal. Like you have to take care of your, your creature needs. And I think like just resting or curling up, just enjoying things, like not thinking about stuff sometimes. It's, it's like critical to keeping your physical body like healthy. Yeah, for sure. I feel like in today's society where we kind of push hard work and going all in as far as you can. It's hard to remember that because that's one of the subjects that's not talked about quite as much, but it's just as important as getting enough rest for yourself to be as efficient as you can be in other areas and just also enjoy life. Yeah, definitely. And I would say it, one of the first things every like, aspiring creative person should do is read up on the science of sleep because i like it's so easy to struggle with bad sleep patterns in today's society you need to understand what the value you're missing out on is like the biggest problem in today's society is we don't understand the costs of some of the stuff we do most of the stuff we do like the full entire cost you know and the cost of not getting great sleep, and I don't, I, very often I don't, um, but I make sure that a couple of nights a week, I get a good night of sleep. If, if I'm just going to work the next day and going to grind it out, eh, I could, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. 
but if like Saturday is going to be the day I have the most time to hit my creative projects, I'm going to go to sleep early on Friday or at least to bed, <laughs> at least no electronics, you know, and sleep is one of the easiest ways to make yourself better at life. Like some of the stuff that I've read is that you do all of your learning when you sleep that your brain encodes the information into your brain only when you're actually asleep. And so like you can keep things in, sh you, you can cram things into your short-term memory. So this is why cramming sucks compared to like kind of a, a long-term approach to learning. Like when you try and shove everything in your brain the night before, it kind of overloads your short-term memory with stuff like and then that filters into your long-term memory while you sleep and then you find you lost a lot of that information because you tried to overfill a cup that every night drains into your long-term memory and so if you did it over the course of seven nights you could have learned seven times as much because you've got one cup but it keeps emptying over time you know it's like a daily but if you try and do it all in one day you don't get much more than you would have from, you know, like, yeah, you just don't capture that much because you, you tried to, your capacity to intake information just isn't as great as the stuff you're asked to do. Uh, and sleep also like regulates mood. There was an interesting thing where one of the, like Greece or something, uh, one of the Mediterranean countries had a siesta built into its economy and they wanted to be more productive. So they cut out the like, I think like one to two or one to three o'clock, like it was expected that businesses would shut down and, you know, everyone could relax and you could take a nap. And so the government was like, all right, let's do away with nap time in the middle of the workday and up our GDP. And what happened was they found that the rate of aggression and a heart attack like spiked across the male population in that country significantly and the female, but not nearly as much as with the guys. And it's like one of the things about sleep is when you sleep, your brain goes back over memories, but it doesn't produce uh, the emotional uh, chemicals that you would if you were experiencing that live or even if you were remembering that while you were like fully conscious. And so it's a way for your brain to like encode a memory, but without the emotional context and kind of like separate it from the emotional reaction. And uh, so like sleep helps you get over stuff. Like that might be why over time, like time heals all wounds is kind of like time disassociates emotional pain from memories because sleep disassociates emotional pain from memories. Uh, and I thought that was a really fascinating thing. And so like just getting a handle on your sleep can make you more effective at almost everything in your life because it helps you learn and it helps you maintain like emotional stability. So uh, without those, you're pretty screwed as a human. Yeah, I agree. I think sleep is vital and it really 
I want to say we need more education on sleep because it's not really taught to us how important it truly is. It's something we kind of learn through trial and error later in life, you know? Yeah. I think my, my parents' generation had zero access to this information, if it even existed, you know? It's like one of the great things about living now is we can find out so much. But one of the tough things is no one has actually tried to comprehensively figure out what it is that humans need and put that into like a teaching system. I mean, I guess we've tried, but there's so much new information that we need to be constantly revisiting it, like and changing what we do. And at the moment, yeah, no one, no one teaches you this stuff. Like you, you basically have to teach yourself how to take care of yourself these days. And what they do teach you tends to suggest that you don't need to take care of yourself at all. And I think that's how a lot of people burn out one way or the other. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's also a thing that's kind of difficult because it varies a lot from person to person what taking care of yourself means. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Def- definitely. Like the taking a Sunday to relax is like me and my friend we actually started doing it uh, because she was having back surgery and she needed like she wasn't allowed to lift anything over like 10 pounds um and her mom was like so who's gonna take care of you and her mom had been staying with her for like two weeks at that point and was gonna stay another week or maybe more and she was like i could stay with you an extra three weeks and my friend was like oh hell no I need you out. <laughs> like, like I can't handle that. You know, you being in my apartment here for much longer. And she's like, "Don't worry, Philip will come over and help me deal with everything at least once a week." And so we totally. Uh, that wasn't we. I don't even know if we were planning on following through, but she did need someone to take the trash out. So I came over, and then we turned it into a regular thing because it was so good. And I, I think that's because it is difficult to figure out what you need. It's so important to be open to finding something that is sustainable, sustaining to you. Like you have to watch carefully for the things that do help. And, you know, like when you're starting out, just taking care of yourself, like getting those skills down is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing I know is that you read a lot of books. What are the books you say have meant the most to you or have had the most benefit to you? All right. Uh, so I'm making, I'll bring you a complete list of my favorite books uh, later. But I was going through the books. And I'll say that I... I basically stopped reading after college until I got Audible um, and a commute. And I had been commuting for a couple of years and not listening to audiobooks. And Audible changed all that. And I'll just go ahead and say why. It's because you can return books 
within a year of having checked them out and get a credit with like basically no hassle. You can just like go through a book you've already read. You can even keep it downloaded on your phone. Um, so like while Audible is kind of expensive at about 15 bucks a month, it's like an infinitely shiftable library of audio books and it's fantastic. Um, so that's my plug for Audible. It was definitely like I've consumed like, I don't know, at least 80 books because I had Audible and for no other reason that I never would have managed before. Uh, I say recently, um, I really enjoyed Becoming Brilliant a lot. It outlines basically the six 21st century skills we need to be teaching our children. And to me, what I really got out of it, and like the first two are collaboration and communication, um, which I already agreed with heavily, but I'm using what I learned from this book to double check my work on my collaborative storytelling game to make sure that it's hitting all of the major skills that uh, humans need to interact with each other, right? If you're making a collaborative game, then you kind of need to know what skills are required to play. And I think games should teach skills that people can use outside of the games. And so Becoming Brilliant has become my report card to myself on whether my game is complete or not. You know, like it's kind of become my checklist. Uh, and it's just cool to read about how children learn. Um, and of course, how children learn is how adults learn. It's, you know, like, it's, we don't really change that much when it comes to like the core like intake methods. Uh, one of the really profound books I read was called Die, Die Wise, D-I-E. And it's, it's about, it's about dying in our society today. So the guy who wrote it is like, he's been 40 years in the palliative care field, like dealing with people who are definitely going to die. And through his experiences doing that and through his, uh, his engagement with a Canadian, like, um, indigenous culture, he kind of like takes the, the indigenous approach to dealing with death and life. And he presents it in a way in like, in a way that isn't religious. And uh, he, the first half of the book is kind of like establishing what the problem is and a bit of a common language about the problem, which is that basically when people die today, we traumatize everyone around us, right? I, 
I think it's pretty fair to say that if you or someone you know dies, you can expect that everyone around that person is going to be traumatized by that event, right? So the, the way, like the general gist of, of what he talks about is that if you live with the knowledge that you will die instead of kind and so, so that scares everyone. Like we know that if we die, we're going to traumatize the people around us. So there's nothing, it's, it's, there's nothing to look forward to. And so we kind of try not to think about it. Um, but that there's that you could live with kind of dying on your mind and use that to motivate yourself as well as having some skill in culturally and personally in how to deal with dying. That is like, instead of having it be an incredibly traumatic experience, everyone knows how to kind of ease off and let go and like appreciate and then move on. Like those are skills that we could actually develop as a culture and as individuals that we totally just ignore. And it means that instead what you get is if you aren't good at dying, you traumatize everyone around you. And if everyone around you isn't good at helping or just letting people go, they traumatize themselves and everyone around them. And so it's like, it was a book about what we could do to um, kind of lessen the trauma around death, which was like insane, like insanely. I'd never thought about it. It was, it was a wild read, but um, utterly, utterly fantastic. I thought. Um, I really liked Homo Deus a book about basically understanding the future of human endeavors. The guy goes over what we have done in the past and what we're likely to do in the future, like pursue immortality, pursue um, like hap not, not happiness, like ecstasy, like pursue feeling good at like a button press, you know? Um, I would say digital, like digital gaming is close to, is like our version of that already. Like, how can we always be happy? Uh, how can we live forever? And how can we, oh, what was the third one? Yeah, I forget, like these major human endeavors. Um, he's like, we're gonna try and do this. Whether we succeed or not, he's like, I can't say, but here's all the history around why we're almost certainly going to attempt to become immortal, why we're going to attempt to become permanently happy and why we're going to attempt to oh become like powerful you know like achieve like we want to be able to throw fireballs and stuff you know like we're we're going to like enhance ourselves um and it's like everyone's going to try like there's just it's the the human economy is going to move towards this and it talks about how like as scary as the military industrial base is like corporations no longer really appreciate war. And so war has gone from being something that humans expected to happen to something that humans expect not to happen and how we've kind of like conquered the original four horsemen. And now we're looking to like one up reality by <laughs> taking care of every other problem we had. 
so I thought that was cool because it's always like a good opinion on what human where human humanity as a whole is going always is just incredibly interesting um if i'm gonna plug one last one that i thought was probably it's probably good for everyone i read this book called the gift of fear and it's about predicting violence and uh using intuition and it's by a guy who runs a bodyguard firm for like celebrities uh, but came from like an abusive household himself. And he turned his ability to understand where violence comes from and what the signs and symptoms of uh, like a violent reaction are into a, like kind, uh, a scientific study of what you can do to uh, pick up on and safeguard yourself from the indicators, the pre-indicators of violence. And I, while it's important reading for anyone because violence is really poorly understood and you often get the like, you never could have expected this or like who could have known is like a common response to violent acts. Like it's definitely predictable. And it is especially important read, I think, for women in our day and age because the incidence of like male on female violence is insane like it's insane that we live in a society where that disparity is so huge i'm not saying like obviously that women should start shooting dudes um but like it's it's a huge problem and i think you feel like it's over or something when you when you don't see it but domestic abuse is just insane and women just like the number one thing that kills women is men so i mean like early death and it's just it's something that you need as if you're going to navigate the world especially now that you come into contact with so many more people not that most of them are dangerous but you know it's just Stop. Like it's good to be able to recognize like what might lead to something dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous situations. Yeah, exactly. And it works for nonviolent situations as well. Like uh I think I had a girlfriend who was incredibly like social justice aware and definitely raised my own I like I she she definitely helped me raise my own awareness of like how things can be harmful. And like we talked about violent communication and nonviolent communication. And it took me a while to wrap my head around the fact that words could be harmful, you know, like, you, I don't know. I wasn't raised to think that way. And, but it's so obvious once you get around to it, you're like, yeah, of course, like everything, anything can hurt. And the same things that lead to physical violence lead to emotional abuse. And even like, common workplace like discomfort can be like it's it's crazy like for example one of the preconditions is that the person feels they do, they have no other alternative and so one of the best ways to trigger violence from someone is to box them in to a corner where they have they perceive no alternatives and so if you know that you can probably help someone avoid 
that situation. Like if you know someone's bad at communicating, you don't have to verbally pressure them until all they can do is lash out, right? Because then you're leaving them no alternative. And so it can be as simple as that. Like that's one of the reasons why restraining orders can be really dangerous to people. Like a woman who is abused goes out and gets a restraining order. And then her husband is like, I guess the only alternative I have to maintain the life that, that I value with you is to like kill us both. Like that kind of thing happens way more than anyone wants to think about because it's horrible and nasty, but it can feel like he's losing alternatives. Like, well, he's banished now from his house. Like, you know, he didn't understand how horrible, he didn't understand the full cost of what he was doing to him and everyone else around him. But in the moment, the only alternative that he seems he can think of is to, to do something like wildly violent. And that's just, it's crazy. But like you can perceive this stuff in advance. You can see what's going to happen. You can understand the kind of behaviors or what has to go through someone's mind before they can finally take those actions. Anyway, that was a really, really affecting book. Yeah, very interesting. These are all great life tips that I feel a lot of people should have. That's my dad taught me to collect that stuff. And that's what I do now. When you said wisdom, I try and I don't I try and shy away from the word in most part because it's it's overblown and it tends to just raise everyone's skepticism. But if you recognize something as a wisdom, you should retain that and you should actively seek out things that might provide wisdom to you, because I think what wisdom is to me is something is something digestible that will can bloom into a greater understanding like a valuable understanding of some concept and it's like a seed you know like wisdom it's like that zen riddle that if you understood it you would be better for it and so that's what wisdom is. It's like something you sense the potential to te- to learn from in it. And like to actively collect those things is one of the most, one of the best cost benefit ratios you can possibly have. Because thinking is cheap. Doing stuff is expensive. Yeah, for sure. And kind of like, Dominic, when he was on here last week, he said you should always be seeking out new information that might alter or disprove what you already believe or give you a better understanding of something that you may not have a full understanding of. Yeah, definitely. I I find if you're uncomfortable with something, you should probably pursue it. Um, uh, especially the older I get, the more true that is because the things that I'm uncomfortable with at this point are are unlikely to be things that are actually dangerous or problematic for me in a kind of like real world perspective. Like they're like, like at this point, preferences are my problem. Not like, am I gonna survive or am I gonna be able to pay the bills or whatever, you know? I'll say I'm 34 at this point. So, you know, I've been out of school since, 2009 and I took 
six years to finish school, five and a half, you know, whatever. And um, I took a year off as well. But uh, yeah, if you are uncomfortable with something, it's probably because you mentally walled it off back at some previous you. And, you know, for some reason, everything we do is adaptive. And now it's time to tear down that like automated wall you put up and figure out what is actually on the other side of that. And I can almost guarantee you that the reality of whatever you find isn't as, won't be as costly in the long run to deal with as the fact that you walled it off and will never take a right turn down that path in your mind. You know, like to say, I'm never going to think about this really cuts you off from a whole part of yourself and your processing capabilities at a minimum. Um, and to obey that rule from some previous you, when you become more competent every day at dealing with stuff is kind of foolish. So I think if you find yourself uncomfortable, it's usually, it indicates that you're, it's like a, it's like a clue to yourself that there's a way to improve yourself nearby. And if you can't stand finding information that you disagree with, then that's a clue that you're, you're biased, right? Like that your perspective favors something without proof and that's that's a dangerous way to proceed because it can lead you way out on a path that no one will appreciate including yourself yeah for sure like you always you can't really block anything off in your mind you have to take any piece of information that you hear even into consideration just a little bit like don't let a, don't let little things here and there like completely influence you but just take them into consideration and weigh them and process them yeah i think um one of the keys to facing challenges uh is letting go of the things that don't really matter i think Every, every situation, especially new ones, are ones that are difficult, which if you're trying to be creative is guaranteed to happen all the time, right? Because you're trying to forge new ground. Like you're trying to go somewhere in a better way. And like to be uncomfortable with small problems is a huge detriment when you're doing something that is not a well-paved road already. And so if you ever want to be okay on like, if you ever want to follow a creative path, you have to learn to let stuff go, to let things pass by, like things that seem important, uh, things that would piss you off, right? You, it's, it's one of the costs of doing business and you have to learn to minimize the cost that these things take from you. So when you have the chance, practice patience and practice empathy and compassion because those things can turn what would be a negative that is dealing with something you dislike into at least 
a neutral. Like patients can at least make something not costly, like little things. And empathy and compassion can actively make them positives, even if like when you understand that someone else is just trying to communicate instead of just trying to piss you off with the way they communicate, then it's much easier to get information from them that you might need. Like if you understand that people aren't malicious conspirers against you, that they're just doing whatever seems best for them at the time, it's easier to forgive them. And then the weight of holding things against them is eased on you no matter what they do and no matter how shitty they are. <laughs> like you got to reduce your own costs because you can't control what other people do. Yeah, for sure. That's a great way of looking at it. I was actually going to ask you a question about that, but you kind of already answered it completely. So <laughs> sorry. What, what, what no, was the question? Fine. Like the question was just going to be like how you go about handling small things that you can't really control and not letting them get to you. But you just answered that all right there. <laughs> yeah, you probably, yeah. So I would say that's why you do it. The way that you do it is simply practice. Like you attempt to respond to the thing that's happening the way you wish you responded without trying. And eventually, you don't have to try anymore to have it. So, and it can be so hard to put up with people who are insulting or blaming you slightly, passively, aggressively laying the responsibility on you for things that are like a mutual or even not your fault at all. And to just let that go because it's detrimental to you not to is tough very tough but doing it is valuable to you and so knowing that it's valuable and then knowing that all you have to do is keep is imagine the best way you could do it and just tr practice that is like it's so it's nice it's it's nice to know that you can deal with that and you know the first habit is the hardest because you're you haven't seen the benefit ever of practicing such a thing of like working out your, your annoyances until they don't exist. But once you realize you can, you can do that to everything in your life and you can really, really make it easier for yourself to be happy by lessening the, your, it's really your expectations that other people will be shitty or other people are shitty or that you have to care about other people who are being shitty. Um, expect, if you, expectations are where all of the like unnecessary disappointment in the world comes from is uh, something I'm, I'm pretty sure is true. Yeah, something I've heard from uh, Gary V, as we talked about in our last episode, is he always says that um, he always says that happiness comes from expecting absolutely nothing of other people. <laughs> and I feel like that's true to an extent because when you raise expectations and people don't comply with those expectations, you get disappointed. But yeah. It's not in your control at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, having expectations for something you have no control over is a recipe for disappointment and pain. And uh, I, so I don't, I don't know if you were going to ask about it, but I spent years helping organize uh, ethically non-monogamous community, <laughs> which I think I mentioned to you once. And um, I'll say one of the most important lessons I learned from that, which, I mean, you can imagine non-monogamy being multiple partners and ethical meaning that no one, everyone knows um, what boundaries they are working with and who what everyone is doing and that everyone's being safe um that's you know quite a can of worms right and the most critical thing i learned is that people's expectations are almost always at the root of every interpersonal problem uh and just the the, the first kind of hurdle everyone will run across is that relationships are presented in a kind of package format from culture to you, right? Like if you are with someone, then you are loyal to them and you like, and you this and you that. And there's an expectation of how much time you'll spend together. And there's an expectation of, how, um, how much, how many, sac what sacrifices you'll make for each other in, um, a lot of transitioning from that idea into ethical monogamy for people is, is learning that those parameters can be agreed upon at whatever value is comfortable to both people instead of whatever value you saw on TV your whole life. Uh, for example, like marriages and fidelity, like there's, I don't see an actual reason why, um, why fidelity isn't a mutable parameter for a marriage. Uh, and that's like, that's a tough expectation for some people to break, be like, whoa, 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 you can't sleep with anyone else. You're married. And it's like, well, what if the marriage is unhappy? It's like, there's no changing that there's no adjusting. And if you say, well, actually I'm married and I have a girlfriend, then it disrupts someone else's expectation. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought that marriage meant you couldn't, you know? And that is where like, they could just listen to you and hear you out, but often they'll get upset because they had an expectation that you defied and then it hurts. And so that's like, I, yeah, that's just one example, but expectation is absolutely brutal and minimizing expectations is a great way to make your life just a lot less troublesome. Plus then when something good happens, you're pleasantly surprised. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you set your expectations to zero, like when people are good, it really feels a lot better when you don't have the expectation of what that good means. Yeah. And plus it makes like, sometimes if you expected them to do 
a lot for you and they only do a little, that would that's disappointing. But if you didn't expect them to do anything for you, even a little seems great and like they went out of their way and it makes it easier to appreciate things. And there's nothing people hate more than trying and having it thrown in their faces. Like if someone does do a small bit of good for you, that might've been really hard for them. It's hard to say, you wouldn't know. And like to, to then stomp on them for not doing enough, tough. But expectations make it really easy to do such a thing. Yeah, for sure. Now, one more thing I wanted to talk about is I know you've been working on your game for several years. And have you had the patience to kind of keep going at it and, you know, just making sure it's right or following along and not, you know, just kind of rushing? Okay, yeah, yeah. So my collaborative storytelling game, um, I think I've been working on for seven years uh, and hopefully is getting close to actually having like a written manual. Um, I've been changing the rules constantly over the course of like seven years. And I'll say the first key to sticking to it was to have multiple projects like giving myself permission to switch between projects and like lay one down and pick one up. It was critical without that. I would have given up like telling myself I couldn't do what I wanted to do, like crushed my creativity. Like that's what I tried at first. I'm like, I'll just do this till it's done. And then it turned out that there were a lot of other things that I felt like doing that would have been easier. And I would have gone further and more productive because it felt easier. Like there are a lot of like, whatever isn't work to you do that. Like that is productive. And sometimes that was my storytelling game. And sometimes it wasn't. And when it wasn't, I just switched to whatever it was. And I find, I also learned recently from a book called messy um, that task switching is actually something that a lot of creative people do all the time. That it's like kind of a core sign of a creative mentality. And one of the reasons for that is because what you do is you take your inspirations from everywhere and you combine them into all of your projects. So like if you're doing, if I was doing my XCOM modding over here and I thought, man, you know what would be cool is if like, the aliens had like random permutations per alien so that you never quite knew what to expect. And I'm like, man, I really like that. And that's cool. And I, I'm glad I can do that. And then like a month later, I'd switch back to my storytelling game and I'd be like, oh wait, can I mimic that here somehow? Or like, how, how do I randomize this? And I ended up picking up a deck of cards and going like, well, I can use a deck of cards to randomize the story. And I was like, yes, yes. And I'm like, okay, face cards will be like entities and like number cards will be like events. And I'm like, oh yeah, all right, this is, this is really, you know, awesome. And then I'd be like, huh, well, like what, you, you know, it, it, so what you can do is you can cross pollinate across um, domains and that, because humans are much better at synergy at like putting things together than we are at creating completely unique ideas out of the blue. 
Like you don't, your brain is just full of information that you have a very limited access to consciously. But like when you come up with something, it's almost certainly a mixture of things that you already knew. Um, and so like allowing yourself to switch projects, that was number one. Um, without that, sustainability is super hard because you get tired and you get worn out of doing the same things. Um, plus you get stuck sometimes and you go somewhere else, you do something and you're like, oh man, I just realized this is the solution to that problem on that other project. Great. Um, there's a good documentary on Netflix about creativity that I forget what it's called, but it shouldn't be too hard to find. Um, sustainability. Okay, another thing is you have to believe the project is worth it. Like pick a goal, no matter how impossible it may seem at first, that is worthy of the time that you are committing to it. And I, would only, I, don't, I don't like the idea of committing time to it. The time you're going to spend on it is going to have to be worth it or you will leave basically so like i eventually want to write some sci-fi novels but i had tried a couple times to pick up a pen and like write and of course i have no training in <laughs> writing either um and it was like too hard and i was like this is this is too hard i i couldn't possibly do this and thinking real hard about it because I really do want to do it, I realized what I would have to do is make it worth it. Like if I want to write a book, I'm going to have to, it's going to have to be something I'm so motivated to do that it becomes easy. And I'm like, what, how do I get my motivation there? And the answer was to make it such a great book that I wanted to write it. And I was like, okay, wait, well, if it's not written yet, it's not a book, what is it? It's a story. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm, I was building this game, this collaborative storytelling game. I wonder, if, I wonder if that could help me. And I was like, oh yeah, I should make the collaborative storytelling game like a writer's block tool. And now I, so then I figured out how to record the storytelling game such that you could then turn it into like an outline for a novel. You know, and I'm like, ah, great. That was perfect. My projects totally complemented each other. I'm like, when I'm done with the game, I'll be able to use it to write the books and, or, you know, to help write the books. And if I get stuck, I can always go to the game because it's like, it's like a randomized permutation based storytelling um, with like no preparation. So you can just pull it out and like work on a scene, try something. And, um, Eventually, I, yeah, basically what I'm doing is I decided I would come up with a story that was so good that I had to write it down. And that would be how I motivated myself to write a book is I just have to think of a great story. And it turns out it's really hard to write a book when you don't already have a great story anyway. <laughs> so that dovetailed nicely. Um, yeah, like... I just, I just keep improving the story. So, you know, I gave myself permission to just world build until the story was good enough that I, it would feel easy to write the book. And along the way, I've realized I have to make my, I have to learn to write better. And I have to like, I've read a lot of books about writing and 
all of that has helped my storytelling game because of course all the books about writing are explaining narratives and a storytelling game is like the rules of the storytelling game have to support a narrative or or it's just chaos and so those two projects are just like super mutually beneficial and everything yeah it it like they drive each other because i'm like oh i want to finish the game because i want to write a book and i'm like ah i want to write a book because i'm imagining a great story and it's like man when i finish my game i can use that to express my great story and i'm like yes this is all you know like, it's all wonderful but i had to invent all of it i had to be like oh i i, I think i do want to write a book like yeah writing would be great like i love storytelling and then it's like well how are you going to do that and you're like oh it's going to have to be worth it and you're like what makes it worth it and that's up to you but no like it's pretty easy to figure out what it is that you like and what you want and um and it's often easy to find carrots for yourself uh the trick is to put dangle the carrot in front of yourself in the direction you want to go <laughs> and to figure out how to get the carrot there in this case i had to figure out what would make it worth it for me to write a book and the answer is if it was a really badass story i would i would i would have to and it would have to have giant scope and scale you know so i think for the game i want to do something good for i want to create a, a real teaching game like something that educates on the uh, educates the player without them having to focus on that education like if you exercise if you play this game you'll be exercising the skills you need to communicate collaborate and be critical and creative in your in your thoughts and spoken um, communication and I thought that's that's something we need like that's something humans need in the future and so it's like if I'm going to design a game it better be worth it it better be an awesome game and I thought what would make a game awesome that we're not already doing and I was like educational games suck <laughs> Uh, everything I've seen of educational games has been mediocre um, at best, especially in comparison to the best like non-educational games. You're like, look at these mechanics. Oh my God. And uh, I thought, what game would I want to have as a kid? And that's, that has been motivating to me. I'm like, yes, when I was eight, I wish I'd had what. And every time I come back to it, I'm like, do I still want that? Do I still want that that goal I agreed on? Like, is this collaborative storytelling game what I actually want to produce? And the answer is yes. And that is because I took the time to make sure it was what I wanted, like to check my feelings, as well as to adjust my, my values to point towards it. So um, a lot of what makes things sustainable is changing yourself to stay on track but the most important thing is to believe in where you're going. And if you can believe in where you're going, then the rest is just figuring out how to go. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. Yeah, that took 
that was yeah it's not easy i'm not saying it's easy i'm saying it like i understand it but i'm just telling you kind of the steps i've gone through already and how i dealt with them uh i don't think they're guaranteed to work for everyone at least to the degree that they worked for me but these are the things that i found to be fairly true Yeah, I feel like it's definitely good to know what works for you creatively and being able to shift and realign your focus on different things as well as having other projects that influence what you're working on now is it can be a great benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And I'll I'll say one more thing about changing your your mind i read a book about uh the uh, twist endings and it was a like undergraduate uh work book um undergraduate students book i believe and she said that when you get to the twist right like say the sixth sense or something and uh, I suppose, spoiler alerts, uh, when you get to the twist in a movie like that, I'll try and actually avoid spoilers. I think I can. And you're like, oh, my God, I thought this was true. But it turns out the movie's telling me that that is what actually happened. Right. And so you've got. At this point, there's like two U's, and you have to figure out which one you're going to accept. There's the you that believed the original thing. And if you don't accept the movie telling you the new thing, you go, what? That's stupid. And I hate it. You feel like betrayed. People have really emotional reactions to a twist that they don't like. And on the other hand, you might go, ah, I see and understand better what was going on. And I appreciate this new information and am adjusting accordingly like are kind of the two primary responses to like a twist in a story. And one of the things she pointed out was that one of the reasons people react so violently to twists that they don't like is because it's something asking you to change your mind. And when you change your mind, you have to throw away some part of who you are and replace it with something new. And the, if you're not as good, if you're not very good at changing your mind, if you haven't practiced the skill of adjusting what you think, of adjusting your values, then it is incredibly costly to consider new ideas. And it can lead to incredibly entrenched reactions from people and yourself when you don't want to change, when you sense that the cost of changing is so high that it would bankrupt you, it is incredibly difficult to change your mind. And so it's one of the reasons we all need to practice changing um, constantly. Uh, But like, if you get good at it, the price can be really low. And that makes you an incredibly agile thinker. But if you are bad at changing your mind, then even the cost of considering an idea can be too high to follow through on. And I think that's, I think that's like a key, 
like trick to know, basically. Yeah, definitely. Changing your mind is one of the best goals you can have, I think. It is. It's definitely, it's like number one, number one. Otherwise, you'll just be stuck with the same mind the whole whole life. Yep. Well, Philip, it was excellent having you on the show today. Oh, I totally enjoyed it. And thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you have any final words? Hmm. I would just say that keeping your eyes open for your passions is like the first step. Like look around, be open and willing to explore the things that really engage and excite you. And the rest is figuring out how to keep those things in your life. I I think that's like just the number one thing, like be aware for good opportunities and don't be afraid to pursue them. Well said. All right. That's it for me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. It's been my pleasure, Danny. Yeah. Take care. Will do. You too. Thank you. Yo, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word to your friends and family and subscribe for more episodes. Peace.